Okay, 1 Peter chapter 2, and this evening, three words, in his steps, in his steps. And essentially, we're going to be talking about following Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. But what glory is it if... When ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Here's our key verse right here. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed Himself to him that judgeth righteously, who in his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. But we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Now in the previous verses, he is talking about suffering. He's talking about the conscience. You can see in verse 19 where he talks about a conscience toward God. In chapter 3, verse 16, you can see where he speaks of a good conscience. And the same thing in verse 21. Peter is explaining to us that a conscience inside of a Christian is a very important commodity for God. The conscience is shaped by culture. Your conscience is shaped by what is put inside of it, the kind of information that goes into it. And it's our conscience that excuses our behavior when we do right. But it's our conscience that accuses us of wrongdoing when we err or sin. And the scripture says, when your heart condemns you, know that God is greater. So there's something inside of everyone that helps them to know there are some things that are right and there are some things that are wrong. And the more scripture that you put inside of you, the more that you're able to develop your conscience, which very often shapes and drives your emotions. Because according to the way that you think, that's going to have some kind of influence upon very often how you feel. You spend a lot of time thinking about people that hurt you, you're going to be a very unhappy individual. So Peter is telling us in this particular passage that there are three things that are important If we're suffering for righteousness sake, verse 19, he says, if we are enduring, he says, this is a praiseworthy thing. Now, what does it mean to endure? That means we have to be long suffering. We have to understand that the adversary is coming against you and he's coming against me. But Peter says, if we endure or persevere, then our conduct is worthy of praise. He goes on to say in verse 20 that we are in a glorious position when we are enduring. And then the third thing he says at the end of verse 20 is that this is acceptable with God. So I want you to understand God does not want you to give up. God doesn't want you to wave the white flag. God does not want you to pass through a severe trial and then decide that you're not going to follow him any further. As a Christian, if endurance is important to him, as it is stated in verse 19, a good conscience toward God, enduring grief, 
If we endure, we must know that as Christians, all of us have to have and face endurance tests. Now, an obstacle course is something that a person has to face in order to overcome a lot of fears. So if you're afraid of heights, they're going to make you scale a wall. If you're afraid of heights, they're going to make you climb a rope. If you're afraid of heights, they're going to make you swing across a pond or walk over a log that's over a pond. An endurance test is given in order for you to recognize where you have some weaknesses, but also to build up strength. When you go to the doctor and you tell him you're having heart problems and that doctor says, well, first thing I want to do is find out about that heart. So we're going to give you a stress test. You know what that is? That's an endurance test. They're keeping you busy. They're getting that body moving because they want to see how that heart is moving and they want to see what's happening with your blood pressure and all of these other things that they have because they're trying to study all of this. And God wants you to understand that as a Christian, when you're passing through difficulties and tests and trials, the adversary is doing everything he can to cause you to fall out. But God wants you to know you're strong enough to endure. And the scripture says with a good conscience toward God, you should be able to endure. He says, if you go to jail because you've done wrong, then you don't have any reason to boast. But if you're suffering and you haven't done anything wrong, then he says you need to know this is something that pleases God. Peter continues by telling us in the first sentence in verse 21, this is to what we were called. You were called to suffering. You were called to endurance. If you're going to be a Christian, expect the devil to fight you. If any preacher or any Christian tells me they did anything for God that affected people in a positive way and they say it was easy, I'm not going to believe God had anything to do with it. Anything you do with God, the devil is pushing back. He's fighting you. He's providing adverse winds. It's just like somebody who gets in an airplane. And if it's a propeller plane, if they got a tailwind behind them, that helps them a lot. But if they're flying into a headwind, that slows them down. So sometimes things don't happen as quickly as you want them to happen in your Christian life because you may be walking into a headwind and the devil is trying to slow you down. If he can slow you down enough to the point where you don't feel like you're making any kind of progress, then you know what happens here. You will faint in your mind. And once you have given up in your mind, you pretty much are going to cease going forward. The battle is won and the battle is lost in your head. Between both of your ears, that's where the battle's going to be won or lost. That little kid that walks out there on that mat and he looks on the other side of the mat and see the kid, he's got to wrestle. He comes, approaches that mat and he may think he's strong and mighty. But when he looks at that other kid on the other side, if that kid looks stronger or if it's a kid he's had to tangle with in school and lost several times, then that little kid's going to be looking up in the bleachers to see where mom and dad is because he wants to have a good idea where they are when he takes off running. But he's already given up here. But the one that believes I can overcome an obstacle, that's the one that's going to be able to endure. So Peter's teaching that we have been called not only to suffer, but also to endure. Now, the devil brings suffering because he doesn't want you to endure. But notice what it also said. Here's the reason. 
because Christ also suffered. You say, well, I don't understand why God permits me to pass through all of these things. Well, why did he allow his only begotten son to pass through these difficulties? Are you better than Jesus? No. Then if the Lord permitted Jesus to pass through difficult times, don't expect him to keep you from every circumstance that can squeeze you. Some of us have to go through Gethsemane, not because I want to go through Gethsemane. The scripture says in Matthew four, verse one, and in Luke chapter four, verse one, the spirit of the Lord led Jesus out into the wilderness. Why? In order to be tempted by the devil. So there's some places along your path that God takes you because he wants you in a position where you can overcome. But you can't overcome if you don't face obstacles. You cannot have a testimony if God doesn't permit you to have tests. So sometimes when we say little things like, who wants to testify tonight? Well, typically the only people that's going to testify are people that have had a test. I'm not saying you need to go out and pray for a wilderness. But I am saying that you want to be able to be courageous enough Give a testimony when an opportunity is extended to you. Because if you have a mouth and a tongue and you're able to raise your hand and say, praise the Lord. Any opportunity you get when someone asks for a testimony, you should be willing to give it. Because there are a whole lot of people in this world who can't talk, wish they could talk, don't have a tongue, wish they had a tongue. And they can't say a word. Some of us that are able to speak don't say anything. Time, folks, all you have to do is just say, Pastor, I praise the Lord to God. Open my eyes today. That's it. I praise the Lord. I'm still here in the land of the living. I praise the Lord, Pastor. I was able to walk in here today on my own two legs. See, yeah, that, That's all we're talking about. So Jesus then has left us an example because he suffered. Now, let's remember what happened. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. His disciples fell asleep. By the time they woke up, there was a crowd of people there. Some Roman soldiers with some torches and and leading the band was Peter. Excuse me, Judas. Judas was out in the middle of the parade. And he had told him, once I kiss him on the cheek, you'll know that's the Christ. Now, Jesus could have moved when Judas got close to him. He could have turned and shunned him. He didn't do that. He stood right there and let Judas kiss him on the cheek. And then he said to Judas, friend, can you imagine calling that scoundrel a friend? Friend, are you betraying me with a kiss? Then they apprehended him. Peter got angry and upset. Peter, Peter did what Randy would have did if somebody would have tried to arrest Brother Darrell. He pulled out that sword and went to swinging it. And that man, he just happened to duck and move his head and his ear got cut off. And according to the scripture, Jesus reached up there, touched the man's side of the head and healed his ear. They hauled Jesus off to the judgment hall. Six trials our Savior had that night. Folks, you've never seen the like. I know we've seen the passion, but I'm telling you the passion doesn't have anything on what happened to our Savior. From one judgment hall to another, even pulled him out of Jerusalem's jurisdiction to take him over to where Herod was at. The scripture says they stripped him of his clothing, put some 
some uh, kingly attire on him to mock him, pressed a crown of thorns on his brow, blood running down. Scripture makes it very plain. He put a reed in his hand, then took the stick out of his hand and started beating him on the head with it. Scripture says a bunch of soldiers. I mean, a whole lot of soldiers, folks. They all marched past Jesus or they all surrounded Jesus. And it says they spat on him. You tell me how happy you've been in your life if anybody's ever spat in your direction. The Bible says Jesus endured it all. He never said one thing. Don't tell me with Christ living inside of you that you can't endure. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, consider him lest you become weary and faint in your minds. So just when you're thinking about giving up because you don't think you can take it anymore and it's just too painful, think about what Christ did for you. And that book says in verse 21 here, he suffered for us on our behalf, vicariously, in our place. He stood condemned. He received the judgment that should have come to us. Folks, listen to me. When when Jesus suffered everything he suffered, there was no sin at all in his life. But any of us that are here right now, there's enough sin in all of us that were not for the grace of God. We'd all slide straight into hell. None of us could ever say that that we are so holy and so pure that we can never understand why God lets any. Any bad things happen. There have been people written books about that. You know, they, they, they get up and preach sermons like why bad things happen to Christians. You know, the, you could reverse it and ask the question, why does God let good things happen to Christians? You see? But think about it. He died for us. Isaiah 53, he bore our griefs and sorrows. I told you the word griefs and sorrows in Hebrew and in English covers Not only the spiritual aspects, but even the physical aspects and sicknesses and infirmities. It's because of what he endured, the stripes that were laid on his back, that we can pray for people that are having problems and ask God to heal that broken heart. Because of that, we can ask God to heal somebody's physical body. Jesus, it says here, he left us an example that's a very interesting way to describe that because an example or a model is something that we should follow and we can't deviate from it. We shouldn't deviate from it. I was talking with a, a, a teacher one time and we were talking about uh, math and so they were, we were talking about the whole common core kind of a thing that they do and so She was saying to me, she said, now, Pastor, you know, you learn math in a different way than we have to teach it today. I said, well, what what do you mean? So she wrote down a problem on a piece of paper, and then she asked me what was the answer. So I told her. I just did it in my head. I knew immediately what the answer was, just figured it all out. She said, well, we can't teach them like that. We have to show the kids how to work through the problem. So she started writing down the problem and working through the method and all of that. And I said, there's no way on this earth you're going to get to the answer I just had. And she worked it out and sure enough, arrived to the same answer that I had. And I said, well, it just seems to me mine was easier. And he said, well, no, but the the curriculum says we've got to go through the problems that help them think this through. So that's the example. That's the model that has to be followed. Well, if a math teacher goes to the wall 
and says, I'm going to put a problem up here and and uh, you're going to have to work with these theorems and all of that. And there are two ways to get to the right solution. You've got to use one of those ways. There could be somebody sitting there who is ingenious and try to create their own method of arriving to the answer and get to the wrong one. And then argue with the teacher about what the real answer is. Now, I know that can happen because I've done it a hundred times. But, you know, the bottom line is they have already given us an example of how to work from point A all the way over to this side. If we follow the example, we will arrive at the right conclusion. But if we try to produce our own methods, we run into trouble. Well, the same thing happens with Scripture. Do you realize that the Bible was written by farmers, fishermen, ordinary people like that? But today we have PhDs and all kinds of other peoples who have really made it very difficult to understand a very simple sentence in the English language. And they have worked out all kinds of new methods of interpretation. But if you use the new methods, you never come to the truth. So you can take a feminist approach to the Bible. You always end up hating God and disliking men. You can take the communist approach or the socialist approach to scripture, which they call liberation theology. You will never end up with anything that looks like scripture. And over and over again, we've watched as people have turned from the truth and started using different methods. And this is why we have the confusion we have in the church today. Which bathroom? Should our kids use? See? Totally confused. Because when we look at Scripture, we can't see the plain and ordinary answer, so we've left the example. But Jesus is the one that provided us with the best model. You know? Over 130 years ago, there was a pastor down in Topeka, Kansas. And this man had a fairly good sized church with a lot of old money in the church and some well-to-do people. And because of how the church was built, you know, in a lot of the big cities today, some of the areas where they haven't really brought some things up to date, you can still find some open grates in the ground where the heat comes up. So this church had something like that out on the sidewalk where, you know, you had your return air, then you had the heat blowing up. And so the homeless people would come and gather around this little grate just to keep warm during the wintertime. And one man, homeless, went and laid down on that, and some church people ran him off. And so he went and eventually knocked on the door of the pastor. And the pastor opened it, saw he was sickly and hadn't eaten well, and invited him in, laid him in the bed there, and have to have him cleaned him up first, and three days later the man died. But before he died, he said to the pastor, you folks talk a lot about Jesus, but I sure hadn't seen a whole lot of people that act like him. So that pastor, Mr. Sheldon, he, he challenged his people. He said now, he said, here's what happened. But I'm challenging you all for one year. I want you to think before every decision you make and before every big project you get involved with, I want you to ask yourself one question. What would Jesus do? That's what he did. He challenged the whole congregation 
for for one year. They thought about that. At the end of the year, he then had different people get up and testify. And they were telling stories about how that question changed their life and all kinds of wonderful stories. And so he sat down, wrote a book, put a little plot together. And then he wrote the book called In His Steps. What would Jesus do? I guess the thing published in 1896 has sold over 50 million copies now. But here's the point. People were taking Jesus as their model and thinking about what would he do in order for them to determine what they should do. But I want to take it even further. Rather than asking the question, what would Jesus do? What we need to know is what did Jesus do? Because if you don't have any idea what he did in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, you can fabricate in your mind what you think he would do. And there are a lot of people in this world today when they talk about God, they say, look, my God would never do that. And my Jesus isn't like that. And then you show them the text of the scripture and they say, well, I just don't believe that. So they'll work to undermine the value and the authority of the scripture. So what Jesus did gives us an indication of what Jesus does and what he is doing is what he will do tomorrow. The scripture says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. And if that's the case, then why then are there so many people that struggle with believing what he believed and did in the gospel? He left us an example, folks. And then you can see there in verse 21 that you should follow his steps. The word should puts obligation upon us. The word should. Just like when the Lord says you must be born again. If I must be born again, then I may be born again because God does not oblige you to do anything without giving you the freedom of the will in order to accomplish it. That you should follow his steps. So, folks, we're obliged to be Christians if we claim Christ as our Lord and our Savior. If you say God is your master, then God expects you to live a life that is becoming of a Christian, your conduct, your behavior, all of that is essential to the life that we live. Now, a word that people don't like today, which was very popular when I started preaching back in the 80s, was the word holiness. And it's still a very important word. God wants us to live a clean and pure and holy life. How did Jesus act? Do you think when Jesus got mad that he cussed somebody out? Maybe we ought to think about the kind of words and language that comes out of our mouth sometimes. Do you think when, when, when Jesus was here on planet Earth that he spent a whole lot of time down there at the uh, Roman uh, amphitheater watching all the gladiators slit each other's throats and all that kind of a thing? Then maybe we ought to be concerned about some of the things that make us happy, things that we find entertaining. The reason I stopped boxing as a teenager was because somehow or another, I was having a hard time praying in my corner and asking God to help me knock this man out. I'm serious. And my last fight in the ring, inside of the first round, by the end of the first three-minute period, the guy was fighting, his lip was bleeding, and his eye was swollen shut. How do you pray and ask God to help you 
to do that, you see. So God had to slowly show me that there's going to be a lot of people to pray for a lot of things, but there are just some things I need to make sure that I'm trying to keep myself away from. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not telling you that, that, that sports are sinful. I'm not saying all sports are sinful, nothing like that. I'm just telling you that's how God dealt with me. I've, I've met enough and seen enough boxers on television. They're giving their testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm glad that anybody talks about Jesus on television. And I'm, I, I used to be happy when, when Nebraska would play Colorado and Mr. McCartney coached Colorado and was involved with Promise Keepers and Mr. Osborne coached the Huskers and he loved the Lord. And I'm sure both of them were praying in their heart, help me win this Big A championship and help me to win this game. But my point is simple. Jesus leaves us an example and we have to consider that. Jesus could have become an actor. He didn't. He wasn't up on any Greek and Roman stage undressing himself in a provocative manner in order to reach the masses of people. He didn't say God gifted me with this body, so I need to come out of the closet and let the world see what I look like. There are a whole lot of actors and actresses. They will tell you acting is what I do. It is not who I am. And just because you see me pose nude in a scene for three or four seconds, that doesn't make me a bad person. But look, folks, you cannot separate who you are from what you do. What you do demonstrates who you are. You can convince yourself. That it's not a problem in order to alleviate the pain of your conscience. But if you're going to have a good conscience toward God, follow the example that Jesus left for you. Follow the example. So let's let's clean this up a little bit. What kind of an example did Jesus leave for us? It says there in verse 22, he didn't sin. What is sin? He did not transgress God's divine law. See, he he didn't do anything that would break a commandment of God. It says there was no guile in his mouth. What is guile? Deceit, cunningness, craftiness. I, I describe it this way. With your language, it is possible to say something to someone that would hurt them without you using plain speech to say it. So let's suppose that in your past you've had a few arguments with some people. And so now you're, you're kind of in another heated argument, and the Rolodex in your mind is just going back, you know, 20 years, 8 years, 8 months, and you're thinking about everything that the person did that has harmed you. And so when you, when you begin to talk and say something, you don't want to just come right out and bring up something they did in the past that you can remember. So you will use certain words that when they hear those words, they immediately find that those words are alluding to that particular event. And the whole point of that is to try to bring some kind of problem or some kind of anger. There are some people that have speech that is filled with guile. They know how to talk in a two-sided way. They'll say one thing to your face, something totally different behind your back. They'll say something to you and then you'll hear it. Then you'll know that they're meaning something else. And you'll say, I know what you meant when you said that. That's not what I said. 
but you know exactly what's going on. Jesus wasn't that way. He wasn't playing with people. When he said Herod was a fox, he meant it. Matthew chapter 23, when he called the Pharisees whited sepulchers, he meant it. When he said they travel land and sea to go to another country and turn them into a convert and then make them twofold the child of hell that they are, he meant what he said. But then what other example did Jesus leave for us? It says in verse 23, he did not revile. What is revile? That is abusive and contemptuous or contemptible speech. You're pouring out bad language upon people. This is interesting. Think about this. In our current culture, if someone is a guy who likes a guy, you cannot use the F-A-G word out loud and call them that. Although growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, my brothers would say that to anybody they thought was sweet or they'd say it to me if they were trying to mess with me and get me upset about something. In our current culture, you cannot even on television or in any, you know, do anything that's going to say somebody's ugly, somebody's overweight. It's bullying. You certainly can't use the N word. Even though in the black culture, they use it against one another all the time in the music and on the movies and everything. And so Hollywood, they've changed the standards. and They say, look, we we don't think you ought to say that. And we want a culture that's entirely positive. And we don't want anybody to use language that's going to make people feel bad. And then you flip the television on. And then you're watching commercials or you're watching something on prime time. And then here's one lady and she yells at another lady or a man yells at a lady and calls her a female dog. And nobody thinks that's a problem. Because our culture has totally lost its mind. So depraved, without any standards at all, we believe We can say what we want if we set the standards. You know what Jesus did when they called him all kinds of names and lied on him? Didn't say a thing. Didn't say a thing. Don't tell me he didn't know some cuss words. He'd been around them Roman soldiers. He'd been around Israel. Everybody in Israel wasn't loving God. But the scripture says that when he was persecuted... And he, he suffered. He didn't threaten any of them. He didn't turn around and say, look, some way or another, I'm going to inflict some harm or punishment on you. He was God in the flesh. He could have. I'm glad he didn't because he set an example for all of us. We've all been in situations before where people have done things and have hurt us. And we've thought to ourselves, you know, God, I know that vengeance belongs to you, but you're taking too long. You're taking too long. And, and we, can, we can settle this if you just let me. See? But folks, you, you have to step back and leave it to God. What kind of an example did Jesus leave behind? The last sentence of verse 23 tells you, he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. When people are doing you wrong and mistreating you, the best thing to do is say, God, I've got to give this to you because you know right now I'm ready to blow my top. And I am so angry that if I gave them a piece of my mind, I wouldn't even want it back because of everything I want to say. So, Father, I'm giving this to you. You are righteous and you will help me. 
you know how I'm suffering and you know how hurt I am right now. You have to be honest. That's the example that Jesus left for us. And then it tells us right there in verse 24, he bore our sins on the tree that all of us being dead to sin should live to righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. That means that when you're suffering, see, in this life to which we're called, according to verse verse 21, when you're suffering and enduring and trusting God and believing God, and in the middle of the battle, you're picking up scars here and there, you realize he still heals? That there are no battle scars and wounds that he can't heal? Think about that. There are a lot of people out here over 80 who rode the orphan trains out here. And of course, the little trains go into the town, then they stop, and then the people go out there and they look and they choose little kids, which kids they want. And then the kids they don't want, they don't choose. So imagine being one of the kids didn't get chosen and you went from town to town and you saw the doors open each time and you saw all them people and nobody ever chose you. There'd be a whole lot of people whose hearts were broken. Then think of the little kids that were chosen by different people and they didn't choose them because they really cared about them or loved them. They just wanted some extra help there at the house or on the farm. Yeah. Think about the, the, the little boys out here that 40, 50, 60 years ago is now being discovered have, were abused by some Roman priest. Think about how they were raised, twisted, tortured minds. That top is just coming off now. Stuff is just coming out, breaking the hearts of people. And a lot of these little boys became men, never could have good relationships with women, never even could become good parents because of that. A lot of scars there, a lot of scars. And there are a lot of young ladies that have needed healing from the power of God. Just the other day, we were driving through Lincoln, and we went by the uh, Planned Parenthood, and we saw the people standing out there. I said, honey, what they're doing? She said, those people out there praying, out there praying. And they're praying that the place closed down. You think of the, the, the young ladies who drive up on their own or with some chaperone. And just when they're about to get out of that car to go into that place to have that baby's life terminated, they probably look over there and see them people praying, and they're probably too embarrassed or ashamed to get out and even walk in. And there are probably a lot of kids today alive right now Because a mama was too ashamed to walk into a Planned Parenthood. See? And the ones that have experienced the scars of that, the difficulties of that. I had lots of friends that did. We had a Planned Parenthood four blocks from my high school. Folks, I'm telling them girls in junior high and high school in particular, they could leave first period, go and have the procedure and be back before eighth period finished. When that happens, there's a scar that's there. But I'm telling you, we serve a God who's big enough to heal every broken heart. There's not a memory in your past. There's nothing that's ever happened to you that's so bad that God can't reach down and say, Honey, do you know how much I love you? 
And my love covers a multitude of sins, even when other people are pointing the finger at you and saying you're this, you're that, and you're worse than this or that. His love never changes. So that's why we hold to that verse that says, by his stripes, we are healed. He suffered. He endured. He made it through. You may be suffering. You keep enduring. You're coming out the other side. Amen? There's no doubt about it, folks. No doubt about it. Let's stand tonight. Why don't we pray for one another this evening? You just pray as God leads you. But reach out there, grab your neighbor's hand. Reach out there, grab your neighbor's hand. Just for a few moments, just pray as God leads you. Let's sit on your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. God, you're able to meet every need, you know, the desires of every heart in here this evening. It's our prayer, oh God, by your power, that you just reach down into the cracks and crevices of every heart where there's a hurt or a wound, where there may be a root of bitterness, we pray that it be uprooted. Father, where there may be someone struggling with the past and the devil is constantly bringing memories to them and causing them to feel shame. Father, we thank you right now that you are the healer of every broken heart. Father, I pray that you give everyone in here this evening strength and endurance to pass through the trials that they're facing right now. And God, we know we're going to be more glorious as we come through this. We love you, we honor you, we worship you, and we praise you in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone said, amen, amen, amen. We're victorious, folks. We're victorious. We, we now have...